Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Liberty Chats, a podcast from the Steamboat Institute. My name is Carl Honiger, and I'm a member of the Emerging Leaders Council, a leadership program out of the Institute. I'm excited to be here today with my guest, Jordan McGillis. He serves as the Deputy Director of Policy for the Institute for Energy Research, and in this role, he devotes his attention to global energy trends, international climate negotiations, and carbon pricing. He also writes for National Review, and his latest project assesses China's oil and gas policy. Your latest National Review article in March was titled The Problem of Economic Dependence, and it mentions how China processes more than half of the world's cobalt, lithium, and the class of rare earth elements um, that are included in producing you know, solar panels and batteries and such. I think that's, that's very timely, especially with this war in Ukraine and the economic dependence we see over there. Um, I think it's really cool that you're bringing that up, but I really wanted to ask you uh, what got you interested in energy policy and what the Institute for Energy Research does? Well, I'm, I'm deeply interested and always have been in, in economic progress, economic advancement, technological advancement, and energy is fundamental to that. Um, I first got my start at the Institute for Energy Research uh, as part of a one-year fellowship, and I um, had a lot of interest at that time, but as I went through that year, um, I realized that that energy gave me the opportunity to take my 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 policy career in a lot of different directions that were all very compelling. Um, one of those directions is the foreign policy stuff you've described, uh, which today the most most relevant nexus is China's energy policy and, and potential U.S. dependency. Um, but in learning about energy, I also came to appreciate how. Uh, sophisticated some of the discussions are regarding environmental concerns. Um, I wrote off a lot of those concerns initially, but as I learned more, I began to um, respect some of the environmental claims more, uh, and it's become more intellectually enriching as a result, and it's become a career that I really enjoy. Um, IER uh, takes free market positions across the the spectrum of of energy policy. Our, Our goal is to uh, establish clear property rights with re- respect to energy and environmental disputes, um, and hopefully just ap- apply those in an even and judicious manner, leading to um, outcomes that are, are respectful of people's property and of their um, health and well-being, uh, while also giving us maximum space for economic advancement through the deployment of whatever energy resources are the most uh, economically viable in, in any given geographic area. Yeah, yeah, uh, that really aligns with the Steamboat Institute and our um, support of property rights and free markets. And so the Institute for Energy Research is a nonprofit then. That's right. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. Okay. And you help publish the monthly carbon tax recap. Could you explain to us um, what that is and why people should follow it? Sure. Um, Probably three or four years ago, uh, I got really into studying 
um, carbon taxes, but also carbon pricing more broadly, which would include, yeah. include cap and trade. Um, the carbon tax is is something that is constantly uh, arising in the political discussion, whether it's at the state level, at the national level, um, or even at the international level in the form of what are called carbon border adjustments. So I started a newsletter. It's called the Carbon Tax Ticker. And I started sending that out weekly in, I think, 2018. Um, and eventually weekly just became too, too frequent. It was taking up too much of my yeah. time. I have more than just that that I want to focus on. So I changed it to monthly and decided I should also log that as uh, converted into blog posts each month for the Institute for Energy Research. So you can subscribe to the newsletter in which I, I touch on whatever's hot that month. Um, it could be a new study that's come out. It could be a maybe highlighting someone else's article, but I try to do two or three different uh, topics that all revolve around carbon pricing in that newsletter, which is called the Carbon Tax Ticker. And then I convert it into a blog post uh, under the Carbon Tax Update name on the IER website. Cool. So what what are like the basics of how economists think about carbon taxes and what's a quick way to understand that? The first term that I would I would throw out there for listeners is externality. And what an externality is, is uh, an effect that can be positive, it can be negative, but it's accruing to parties that aren't directly involved in an economic action. So if I, um, if I plant a flower bed outside of uh, my house and passersby get a beautiful sight, they get a nice aroma from those flowers, they didn't yeah. pay for that but they're getting a benefit. That's a positive externality. Um, yeah. Something that I paid for, but that other people are benefiting from despite not having to pay for it at all. Now on the flip side, you have what are called negative externalities. And that's when third parties uh, have negative effects that, that they bear as a result of my behavior or a transaction that I undertook. And that's how economists tend to view um, the problem of greenhouse gas uh, emissions. They see it as something that is causing a broadly shared harm, um, but okay. the benefits of that action are only uh, reaped by the people who are using the, the fuels, whether it be coal, oil, natural gas. When I uh, put diesel fuel into my car or if you know, I'm using electricity from a coal-fired power plant, I'm getting the benefit from uh, that energy, but then there's a cost. This is the way economists view it. There's a cost. It's a negative externality that's borne by the human population as a whole as a result of the warming potential that greenhouse gas emissions uh, convey. So economists want to try to address that negative externality. And there's generally two ways of, of going about this um, from the perspective of neoclassical economics. One is a term I mentioned, uh, cap and trade, in which uh, economists will and, and climate scientists will utilize what are called integrated assessment models and um, they'll say, this is how much more greenhouse gas uh, our environment can absorb safely without there being too much um, human harm. And we're going to then put that cap, uh, maybe it's national, ideally it would be global, but we're going to institute this and then people will bid um, to be able to emit up to that cap. And that was tried um, legislatively in the U.S., about 10 or 12 years ago, it was called Waxman-Markey. That was the name of the bill after the, the two legislators' names. Um, it didn't ultimately uh, go forward. And so we've seen a number of carbon taxes emerge 
um, and, and been debated on the Hill as well as at the state level. Carbon tax is a little bit different. Instead of having a pure cap on how much greenhouse gas can be emitted, okay. carbon taxes, uh, they're kind of using the same framework, um, but they're saying we're going to put a price onto any a, a certain volume of greenhouse gas emissions. And in order to uh, emit that much, you're going to need to pay this much. So typically it's thought of in terms of uh, tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. And okay. when you put a price on carbon, that typically means you're going to have um, companies that are operating power plants or um, it, perhaps they're uh, refining um, petroleum into, into things like gasoline and diesel will have them pay this fee uh, in order to do so. Okay, now, so that basically makes it so that anybody who uses those products, the cost kind of gets passed on to them. And so they may not see like, you know, a fee or tax at the pump kind of thing, but they're gonna pay a little bit more. It sounds like Canada has some sort of carbon tax or carbon pricing system, is that true? They're working on that. They've got a, okay. a really contentious system in which there's a serious struggle between the provinces and between the, the government and Ottawa. Uh, and Alberta, I know, is one province that's really challenging. I don't know exactly where that conflict stands right now. I do know that the province of British Columbia has had its own carbon tax. Um, and that's kind of how Canada is pursuing it. They're allowing uh, each state or pardon me, each province to go about it in their own way in order to meet the national standard. Um, but British Columbia is one of the one of the places globally that is often pointed to as um, an example of having a carbon tax. And, and the results are, are fairly mixed. Uh, it's really hard to parse out whether it's had a significant um, effect on emissions or whether it's had a significant economic effect. Um, and part of the reason for that is that when carbon taxes are drawn up on a blackboard, they look really clean. It looks like, you know, we'll put this price in, People will respond to that uh, that incentive, and we'll have a lowering of emissions. But in the real in the real world, there are carve outs that are often uh, granted to different incumbents in the political system. There are okay. except exemptions, exceptions, these sorts of things, and we're never sure how these things are actually going to to pan out. My colleague Alexander Stevens at IER, uh, he is quite fluent in, in the school of of economic thought called public choice theory, and public choice theory. And, and Alexander talks about this in his work, describes how um, the po political powers that being that be ultimately distort the way things are, are drawn up by economists. And when they're put into practice, they don't they don't reflect um, the the theory that that backs them up. Yeah. Okay. And that makes sense. So it's basically, I remember hearing about cap and trade years ago. So you're saying that kind of has been shelved. We've moved to discussions about carbon taxes. It's not working so great in Canada. But then there's this, I guess you could almost call them like this new kid on the block in terms of like a more acceptable, more palatable version of a carbon tax. It's not the Green New Deal, but um, it's called carbon dividends. What's a way to best understand this new proposal? Yeah, carbon dividends, um, that's a term that, that's utilized by some carbon tax proponents. But I want to go back before we get to that that point to yeah. what you mentioned earlier, which is the effect on average people of a carbon tax. I said yeah. that companies will pay for that. And as you point out, ultimately, we're all faced with higher prices as a result of the carbon tax. 
um, because companies are facing higher costs, they're trying to uh, to ultimately um, you know match their costs, exceed them, and be profitable. Therefore, they need to raise their prices to recoup those losses that they faced as a result of a carbon tax. So, uh, the, where the carbon tax is uh, will will determine ultimately what the what the price effect is on um, consumers at the pump, but also on things like electricity. But the point is prices do filter down through the system. That brings us to the carbon dividend idea. Because prices filter down through the system, it's often viewed as um, very politically unpalatable because people like you and me who are uh, you know, seeing our, our electricity bills increase, we're seeing prices at the pump increase. And if we're able to identify that that's because of a carbon tax, we're probably not gonna be very happy. The carbon dividend idea is that uh, you would rebate money that's obtained um, through the, the revenue process back to consumers. Um, but this okay. idea is that you would re- you would gather all the revenue from the carbon tax and then you dish it back out to people basically to, to make them whole or attempt to make them whole for the losses we would all face as a result of, of the carbon tax. And this has been tried in, in some form and in some fashion in different places. Switzerland has tried it a little bit. And actually in California where I live, um, we do have a form of carbon pricing. It's a it's a segment-specific cap-and-trade, and, trade. and um, in, in San Diego County or in the, the SDG&E um, service area where I live, we're now getting uh, a form of a rebate back on a, I think, biannual basis that comes from that, from that cap-and-trade. And when I get that, uh, that little bit of money back from SDG&E, I'm going to feel good about it. Um, who wouldn't? Yeah. And that's, that's the, the gambit that um, the the carbon dividend idea is banking on that people will say, Hey, I'm actually benefiting from this because I don't necessarily notice each little additional payment I'm making, but I do notice that yeah. big check I get or that big, um, or that big, you know, direct deposit I get, whatever it may be. Uh, but the problem is we're really stymieing our overall economic potential when we have these policies in place, particularly given the uncertainties that surround uh, carbon pricing. There's a, a really solid paper out, in March from the Niskanen Center. My favorite scholar over there is Edwin Dolan. And he wrote all about the uncertainties surrounding carbon pricing. Um, He ultimately still is in favor of it, um, but he points out that there there are serious economic, scientific, and philosophical issues that uh, that are up for debate um, about whether carbon taxes or cap and trade can be um, an efficient way to manage that negative externality we talked about of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, and that's one of those things where Bjorn Lomberg in his latest book talks about how do we focus more on carbon taxes, et cetera, and how politically it's not very viable, or do we focus on really what innovation there is out there that the free market will decide is best at addressing um, the negative externalities of pollution, et cetera. You know, regarding regarding how the market is operating uh, with respect to this question of, of greenhouse gas emissions, um, I would point out a, a really interesting and positive development uh, that just happened here in, in the beginning of April, as you and I are recording. Um, the the online payment processing company called Stripe they've spearheaded a little consortium of companies um, and raised, I think, about nine hundred and seventy five million dollars uh, to wow. fund carbon removal. 
Um, it's called Stripe Frontier, and, and a couple of a couple of other big name companies that are involved as well, including uh, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, and Google. Um, so we are seeing responses in the marketplace uh, in unexpected ways to to this challenge. We're, what we're seeing is there are a lot of people who have deep pockets who take climate change seriously, and right now they're putting their money where their mouths are, and they're showing we are willing to pay people to start companies, to devise new ways to address this environmental problem. So alongside uh, the uh, evolution of our, of our energy systems, which are consistently showing that they can be um, cleaner, both in the sense of local air pollution and less emitting in terms of greenhouse gases, we're also seeing this uh, money going toward carbon removal. Yeah. That's really cool. I'll have to look into that more. Yeah, Stripe Frontier is the the term you should Google if you're listening to this. Awesome. Uh, let's end first with what you're researching lately and what we can look forward to. Um, what, what are you, are you still focused on China? What else are you looking into? Spending a significant portion of time on, on China and the Asia Pacific region generally. Um, I've got a, a couple of pieces that will be focusing specifically on Taiwan in the next couple of months. One of them is going to discuss Taiwan's uh, potential for a nuclear energy renaissance. Another is going to discuss uh, the viability of the idea of a strategic petroleum reserve for Taiwan. Um, and then more domestically, I'm spending a lot of time looking at uh, local policy and, and transportation and the nexus of those um, issues with with energy. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jordan. This has been another episode of the Liberty Chats podcast. Thank you for listening to today's Liberty Chat. I'm Erica Anderson, the producer of the podcast. Our podcast editor is Fingers Malloy. My co-producers include Charlotte Whalen, Zachary Rogers, Lindsay Martin, and Christina Eastman, all members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, who represent the next generation of free market, free speech leadership. We hope you tune in again for our next Liberty Chat episode. Wanna be free, I wanna be free, wanna be free, yeah.